Just to give you a heads up, I do have a bit of a podcast nightmare. I do have a dog in the background. Oh, I think we should play it for laughs, Katie, honestly. <laughs> yeah. It's the best thing that happened to yeah. make the podcast more fun. <laughs> hey, Elephants. Apparently you're all hounds today. I wanted to start by saying a massive thank you to Beer. Beer Garasso has been a really important part of this podcast behind the scenes over the last year. And unfortunately for me and the whole marketing team at Life Search, someone else has noticed how good she is. She is leaving Life Search for Pastures New, and I just wanted to say thank you. You are wonderful, and we are all so grateful for everything you've done for us. Obrigado y boa sorte. One awesome lady is followed by another one this week. Katie Crook Davis is not only a fabulous podcaster and co creator of her consultancy, Tabby, but she is either just about to or has just become a mother for the first time. Congratulations, Katie. And of course, John. Well, let's begin. So on your podcast, The Risky Mix, which we're, of course, big fans of, and everyone should definitely go and listen to it, you always start with an icebreaker. And so I thought that I would do the same. On your very first day of work, straight out of, of well, whether it be university or age 16 or even before, what were you most nervous about? Gosh, it feels like a long time ago. The thing I was kind of most nervous about was being completely out of my depth. I was kind of 21, just out of uni, took a job in the Gherkin at Swiss Re, walked in, felt like, what the hell is going on here? I don't know what this company does. I don't even, not even sure what insurance is. Um, and I've now got to kind of uh, act like I do. So I think it was that, um, yeah, that imposter syndrome for sure. Totally. What a place to start your career, though. That's a degree in mathematics for you. Yeah. <laughs> you, 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 you've kicked off your career in arguably the most powerful business in insurance. And uh, you didn't just climb to the top of the gherkin very slowly and, and uh, <laughs> become an all-powerful person, Katie. You did, did lots of other things instead. <laughs> Yeah, I I, uh, I don't think I, I realised any of that at, at the time, Tom, to be honest. I think I just, um, I remember quite vividly when I, I honestly had never heard of Swiss Re and I, and I had the address to go to this interview and I, and I got to kind of outside the Gherkin and I walked around the Gherkin maybe five or six times looking for this office thinking, well, you know, it's got to be around here somewhere. And then when it suddenly <laughs> dawned on me, it was the gherkin. That that was just kind of a mad panic, you know, five minutes before an interview. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was a funny time. <laughs> okay, fantastic. And do you now, some years later, feel like you you know what you're doing? You feel like you belong? <laughs> I um, <laughs> better say yes, right? Yeah, no, I um, no, I do, I do. I, I love okay. our industry. Um, I think I understand what we do now. So <laughs> just about. Just about, just about. Okay, cool. So actually, that, that kind of leads us on quite nicely to... You were an actuary, weren't you? Correct. Were you just a, a graduate coming out of university? Like, why, why insurance? Yes. Yeah, so I think um, back in primary school, I always wanted to be a vet. Actually, in all through high school, I really wanted to be a vet. And that was kind of my big dream. And sadly, didn't get in a uh, very competitive kind of uh, situation like like medicine, really. And, yeah, sure. and kind of uh, went away and thought, well, I'm really impatient and I do want to go to uni when all my all my friends are going to uni. Uh, you know, what can I kind of do? OK, maths. All right. I think a maths degree can get you a good job. 
let's go and do maths. So, so I went to um, University of uh, Birmingham, did did a maths degree. And then I think like most maths grads, you come out going, well, OK, that's that's all well and good. But, you know, what do you actually do with a maths degree in, in the real world and in the world of work? And kind of Googled what do you do with a maths degree? Um <laughs> And, and two things came up quite common, uh, quite often, uh, accountant or actuary. And I know there are loads and loads of jokes about how the two compare. And I know that this joke is kind of interchangeable. But the one that I heard is uh, an accountant is someone who who wanted to be an actuary but didn't have the personality for it. But that can absolutely go the other way around. Um, but, 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 I read, but I read it that first way. So I thought, OK, well, well I think actuarial is, is for me. Um, another Google told me actuaries work in insurance. So that was kind of determined the, the route I went down. Okay. So that's it, really. Um, a lot of not really knowing what I was doing and just Googling and having to rely on that path. I think it's a very common, very common story, although yours is an academically elite version, uh, uh, that people essentially fall into our, our business. That yes. Young children don't say, I want to go to insurance. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, but, but eventually it makes sense sometime, uh, sometime in your life and you go, okay, no. Yeah, we call, um, when people say, what do you do? We say we don't sell insurance; we protect families. Yeah, yeah. That's quite a that's quite a nice thing to say. You Absolutely. Do. And of course, we don't protect them against the real dangers that, that face us all. We just protect them against the, some of the financial consequences of that catastrophe if it happens. But it's still a a more attractive way of putting it. Absolutely agree. Yeah. So you did a, a series of podcasts a little while ago, attempting to get young university graduates into into the insurance industry by interviewing young entrants into insurance. What were your major takeaways from that? Yeah, I mean, there are so many reasons, I think, as to why young people should come to our industry. I think when you are in uni or if you're coming, you know, through an apprenticeship route or through college, I think what I'm kind of getting is, and it's not a surprise, I suppose, but the perception of our industry is that, you know, it, we're, we're quite stuffy, we're quite formal. Um, you know, you have to be very numerate to work in insurance. Mm. Um, it's very kind of hard business. Um, and I had the same, same beliefs before before I came in. I, th- I, I thought exactly the same. But, but, you know, I think we all know that actually when you get into insurance the the variety of roles available is so broad and and really you can come in with any skill set and, and be able to apply that to a a role in insurance you know obviously particularly biased but the life and health space particularly you know the protection space it's 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 so much more than just about business for me it's it's about it's really about people and it's about protecting you know pe- people's incomes and their their lives it's it's just huge yeah, it can give you more than just, you know, these are the business skills you'll learn. Actually, you do something that is really important and really matters to to people. Um, but it's, there's a lot of work that would need to happen, I think, to kind of change that reputation of, of the industry. Oh, of course, um, yeah. Not yeah. just amongst graduates, amongst everyone, really. It, it, exactly, yeah. Yes, yeah, so I don't know how you go about that. That's a, that's a, a thing for a, a whole thousand podcasts, <laughs> podcasts in itself. But the... the um, the, the the fundamental idea that what we are trying to do here is good, yeah, good good for uh, the the people who don't claim because they might, uh, uh, unbelievably good for the people who do have to claim. So you say all of that and you think, okay, uh, the the trick must be to do it right. If you're doing good, do it well, and uh, and yet 
quite often our industry doesn't. But let me not get on to my favorite hobby horse, because you can just <laughs> hardly ever get me off that one. Uh, and eyes will be rolling all over the listenership. How did, how did a mathematician and actuary get to the what somewhat less super skilled job of being a national account manager? That's a salesperson's job, effectively, um, mm. and not one to which actuaries generally gravitate. The, the power lies more in the sort of central core of the business than out there on the sales fringes. Are you an extrovert? Is what took you there? Oh, no, <laughs> so far from an extrovert, Tom. Um, <laughs> kicking off my career at Swiss Re was a fantastic foundation, particularly on the actuarial side. I was doing kind of very traditional actuarial roles. Um, I think, you know, a few years in, I, I started to feel like I was a bit too far from the end consumer. I wanted more of that, you know, that social aspect of why we're doing it. And I wanted more of that, you know, how do we protect more people? You know, that that wasn't coming into my job. What I was doing was a lot of a lot of technical work. And so that kind of led me to Vitality. You were, you know, doing amazing, you know, innovative things in, in the, the kind of health and well-being space, which really appealed to me as well. Mm. Um, and I think it was a bit of a probably naive belief or feeling that, you know, I, I just had this pull towards sales and distribution. And I think it was probably just a let me see if I can do it um, kind of thing. You know, I wanted to to challenge myself a bit more. And, and so, so I, I took a national account manager role purely to get closer to distribution, to understand the advisor challenges, to get even closer to consumers. And it was it was an amazing time. I'm so glad I, I took that step, actually. Um, I what I learned from it, and <laughs> to your point, is uh, probably never put an actuary in sales. Um, <laughs> I did, I did, I did realise. Okay, it's not natural to me at all. Um, I'm not an extrovert. It was, it was, it was really tough. But as I say, I'm, I'm so, so glad I did it because I learned a hell of a lot from my line manager, a hell of a lot from my colleagues in that team. I mean, I already respected salespeople, but a massive respect for salespeople, like what they do kind of day in, day out and the, the energy it takes. And yeah, just loved it. That's a really positive story. But then in 2018, did you quit? I did. Why did you quit? You know, I just reached a point where I, I thought, well, what's the next step? You know, I, I love I loved working at Vitality. I think it's a fantastic business. I just didn't know where to go next. It wasn't obvious what my path would be. So I think in 2018, unfortunately, my my husband, who's also an actuary, was in a pretty similar situation with, with his role as well. He didn't really know what that next step would be. So we both decided to, you know, leave our jobs, go travelling and, and take that time out to think about yeah, where we wanted to be, essentially. Where did you go? So we started in um, Seoul, in South Korea. And then okay. we went to uh, Japan. We did the Everest Base Camp Trek. Then we went to Sri Lanka, Bali, Australia, New Zealand. So it's kind of a five-month whirlwind tour. I like I like that, Katie, because you started off in two of the mathematical capitals of the world, Seoul, <laughs> Seoul and Tokyo, uh, and then you slowly graduated just to just to the beach, really. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'd love to say I was doing maths in, in Seoul and in Japan, but I definitely was not. <laughs> and, okay, so yeah, what, what perspective did that five months off give you? I think so. So I think the highlight for me of that trip was by far the the Everest trek. And I know it's a it's a pretty mainstream trek. And I think you know lots of people have done it before. Um, but it was so incredible uh, for both myself and and John. I think it kind of made us 
learn that you can you can actually live a pretty basic life you can really push yourself outside your comfort zone and and just how satisfying doing that can be and I think I also really learned about the the value of teamwork and having the best people around you so so I don't know if either of you have done this trek but um no just over 5,000 meters is base camp okay and it took us about I'd say about two weeks to do the kind of full trek okay, up two and weeks down. hiking Damn. yeah and how long is how long is the full trek I mean just roughly in terms of miles a 130 kilometer round trip beginning at where the um, airport is in, in a place called Lukla but we actually started from we, we couldn't get the flight to Lukla so we actually walked the the path instead of flying it. Walking a path um, instead of flying it is... Uh, I know, I was going to say. That's a, yeah, yeah. It's already to make the journey longer. <laughs> <laughs> we started in a place called Paplu, which is um, in the valleys, kind of, and then we, and then we walked, walked up to Lukla, which is the airport, and then we d- did the trek. Yeah, so, so, so normally what, what happens is you have a, a, a guide who will kind of be with you the whole way and they'll, they'll kind of show you where to go. And, and really the value in the guide is being able to go to the tea houses where you're staying each night and secure you a bed in a good room, really. Um, that's, that's where ours came in really handy. So, so our guide was called um, Raz. And then um, we also had a, another guy called Krishna who kindly carried my bag, actually. And I feel like a real cheat for saying that because I know some people do carry their own bags. But I think mine weighed about 20 kilograms. And um, I thought in the beginning, do you know what? I can carry this. I think I carried it for one day and then said... Krishna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna need your help here. Um, if you, if you're thinking you might be disagreeing with Katie there, just have you ever done a hike for two weeks? <laughs> okay, you let me let, let, let that one. Slide. I'm, I'm letting you slide on that All one. Right. I think two weeks Thanks. hiking. Well, that's a lot. Well, at altitude, at altitude. At altitude. So you're outside oh. your comfort zone, and it, 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 it is, it, it is wonderful to do that. You do feel um that that you're yeah that you're achieving something even though actually yeah. what you're doing is just going for a walk but yeah. uh, but it, it uh, did it change your perspective on life yeah no i think definitely as i say i think um it was just it was just how far you can push yourself and actually do something if if you really put your your mind to it and also how important the people around you are mm. in helping you achieve that thing so mm. we you know we we've been trekking kind of every in the beginning you you do you know you're doing pretty long days of solid, solid trekking because you can because you're not at altitude. By the time you're getting to the top, it's a very short walk actually each day, but it's a shuffle. Right. You, you can only you can only go up a certain um, elevation each day without getting whacked on the altitude. So you have to be very. It's that, that's what the guide's there to do is to make yeah. sure you're not overdoing it. Right. But I remember vividly the heart one of the hardest days. It, the temperature had really started to drop. Um, so you were very, very wrapped up. You kind of, everybody had a cold um, and an upset stomach and, and you've got this kind of headache that's just constant uh, because the altitude, there's not really a lot you can do. So you, so, so honestly, a little bit miserable, right? So this one, this one day, we were trekking to this place called Tembashay um, and it's this kind of tiny village on a mountainside, very, you know, picturesque, beautiful. Um, but I remember, you know, we had this we had this this very steep shuffle to get to this village and it felt like an absolute lifetime. And I was getting kind of more and more miserable as I was going up this. And and, and Raz was, you know, he's being fantastic. He was encouraging me. He was you know, being like, we're nearly there, we're nearly there. I'm going to run ahead. I'm going to get you a nice room at this at this tea house. And, and we, we arrived at this tea house and it was 
essentially a, a tin shed kind of clinging onto the side of a mountain and it was freezing and John and I just kind of looked at it and thought oh no this is like this can't be happening we we need we can't do this it sounds really precious but it just was oh it was really hard and then we got into this tea house and there was a there was the toilet was basically in the middle of the lounge uh, where where you're eating your food and everyone's got nice. an upset stomach so I'm not going to go any further but I'm sure you can imagine yeah. um and, uh, <laughs> what was what was this is this is where kind of the 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 power of the people around you really comes in you know Ra's kind of knew that I was having a really tough day he did picked up on that and he he knew there were two things that would keep me from having probably a huge crying breakdown um and looking very pathetic and that was if there was a if there was a patch of carpet on the floor in, in the bedroom that we got and if if there was some um warm popcorn and and I didn't know popcorn was a thing up there but he just he just kind of said, right, come with me, Katie, don't worry. He took me to this room. He said, I've got you a room with a little bit of carpet. And two minutes later, he turned up with a plate of warm popcorn. And it was just the, the happiest I've been that whole time. Best popcorn you've ever tasted. Best popcorn I've ever tasted. And it just it just shows it's the, sim- it's the simple things, you know, and, and just how amazing the people are. I would have given up, honestly, if he hadn't have been there. Yeah, I think that was the kind of big takeaway, that the big, big kind of perspective change for for me. Uh, just on, on on slightly tricky ground, Katie, and this might well be edited out, but uh, your husband John was mm-hmm. with with you all the way. Yeah. Uh, was he going through the same thing? Was he was he a help? Was he certainly? My wife would expect me to be exactly the opposite of a help. Really, part of the problem, <laughs> not part of the solution. Were you pulling but, him up uh, the mountain? Uh, <laughs> how, how did that affect your relationship? Or did you did you leave him on the mountainside and walk off with Raz? <laughs> yeah, he's still there. He's still there. Um, no, he um, he was amazing as well. He he actually carried his bag, which I don't know how he did. The foot. I think we were very fortunate because. I was suffering with a lot of altitude symptoms as we were going up, but the minute I started descending, they they went for me. But then for John, he was fine actually all the way up, and they those symptoms hit him from base camp down for a few days. So he had his tough days on the way down when I was better, and I had mine when he was better. So we could kind of support each other through it, and he did get you know. He did. He was. He was very good. Small victories. And... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so you you came back with this this perspective, uh, focusing on on teamwork and and the ability to outperform your what you thought you could do. Uh, and where did uh, where did you go with it when you when you landed back in Britain? Yeah, yeah. So um, we landed back and we thought, you know, we're still we're still a little bit unsure about exactly what we want to do with our careers. Um, we looked at a few kind of uh, full-time employed roles. We empl- we interviewed for a couple, and I think we it's fair to say we both came away and thought it's just not it's not completely what we want. I'd always wanted to to do my own thing, to be honest, and and I think I would have probably never taken that step to do that while employed in the corporate world because it's such a daunting leap to go from a a nice, comfortable job you enjoy with a nice, stable salary to being self-employed, right? So I think because we'd taken that step away from corporate world, we'd, we'd, you know, not earned an income for five months. We were in a position where we said, well, what's there to lose? We could we could try this. We can give it, you know, throw, throw everything at it, see where we get to. 
And then, you know, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But we, at least we've tried it and we'll never say, well, what if? And, you know, regret not, not giving cool. it a go. And are you partners in the business? Yes. Tabe. Just out of interest, is, is Tabe a, a nod to something on the side of Everest or is it just a... It is, yeah? it is, yes. Yunko Tabe was the first female to summit Everest. Okay. Brilliant. Cool. Tabe is a consultancy specialising in life and health insurance. I wanted to try and uh, tease out what the difference might be between someone like uh, you and, and your, your husband and, and compare that to Tom. What is the difference in mindset between two entrepreneurs, one who sets up a consultancy and one who sets up a, well, a an insurance re- retailer? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a good question. I think, yeah, Tom, it would be really good to get your, your perspective on it as well. I, I think... Yeah, so there's the two there's the two of us kind of employed by the business, but we do we do work with associates on certain projects, right? But I think as a consultancy, although you know, although you launch a, a brand and you have this, um, yeah, you have a website, you have a brand, etc., mm. and you are a business, I think the way you're seen is, um, yeah, the brand is you, the company is is you, really, right? People buy into to you and your your skill set, so. And that's good. That's good. Um, but it also is a challenge when you want to grow the business or when you went to, when you want to scale what you're doing. Because how do you shift the mindset away from well, it's just me and it's just my skill set to a more of a, of a of a brand you know of that has kind of expertise sure. in it. And I think that's actually the the point that John and I are at with our business. It's kind of we, you know bouncing around ideas about. How, how do consultants kind of scale their business? And I know this is a really common um, aim and, and challenge for lots of independent consultants out there. So I think that's that's kind of my perspective. I don't know, Tom. I think the, the, the you start from a different place when you've got your uh, academic background. I mean, you're a pair of actuaries, so you're automatically able to consult because you know a lot of stuff that a lot of other people don't. Uh, when you don't have any qualifications, you've got to kind of trade your way to somewhere. No, no one's going to pay to listen to you. You've got to sell yourself in. And actually, I think consultancy, the, the hardest part of consultancy must be selling that yourself into your, your B2B target market, as it were. Uh, from my perspective, I've always, I've always felt there are definitely two types of people. There are people who are happy being listened to, and then other people do what they're told to by the, the first group. And they're happy effectively consulting. Whereas I, I personally would find that deeply frustrating. Uh, I, 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 less so now that I'm old, but in the beginning, I wanted to do it. So the, the first business I, I found was Bakery Davies, and Bakery and Davies were two people. We didn't really have an idea of growing the business when we started back in 1980, whatever it was. Uh, and uh, we found we had to grow the business because we just needed more support. So it was just purely organic. Right. And then Life Search sprang, sprang out of that because I realized that what I really wanted to do was uh, have a business which made a difference, made a difference yeah. to its market, made a national difference, dreamt of being international, uh, and that automatically meant that I was only starting it to grow it and hire people right. and, and do that. But again, just the idea of consultancy, uh, I suppose as I move now to, to chair uh, the business, mm. hmm, this is my, my effort at being a consultant. So we'll see if yes, I'm so. any good at that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, um, yes. So the, 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 there's the difference between us. Is um, Katie knew what she was talking about, and I had to learn, <laughs> I had to learn on the job. You had to prove it, which yeah. you now have. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. That's my son Took you a bit that. longer. Proud yeah. <laughs> dad. It's, it's funny what a degree will do. <laughs> um, I guess, would it be fair to call Risky Mix your passion project? 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah? So your passion project, uh, along with your your co-host and co-producer, Rajvarya, why did you two decide to to start Risky Mix? And from, from one podcast to another, yeah. how's Risky Mix going? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I love, I love it. It's, and it's absolutely a passion project. So Raj and I used to work at Vitality together. And, you know, I think we... We always kind of used to to moan, to be honest, about just the lack of diversity and inclusion in, in our industry. And I think, you know, one one night over a meal, uh, you know, having drunk far too much wine, we, we said, well, should we actually do something? Uh, sh- should, we, should we not moan? Should we, sh- should we see if we could actually play a part in, in making something happen here? And, and, you know, whether it was the wine talking, we, we both agreed that'd be a great idea. And then... The following morning, I think much to Raj's surprise, I messaged her saying, right, so when are we kicking this off then? And she, she was like, oh, you were serious. Okay. There are so many topics around DNI that are quite uncomfortable, if we're honest, to kind of talk about. And we, what we wanted to do is create that platform where we could have those honest and frank conversations and we could get those topics that are a bit more uncomfortable on the table and, and normalise them, really. Um so I think that's kind of where where it all came from. So we kicked off in October 2019 and it's been it's just been brilliant. I'm sure you you find this as well, but just the the people that you get to speak to and and learn from is incredible. I think Raj and I come off our recordings and and actually feel like do you know what we loved that. We learned so much just personally. It almost feels a bit selfish. Um you know in that sense yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you're if it's the same for totally. you I guess yeah I've personally been able to, just been able to speak to people who I would have never have spoken to for an hour before yeah. before this well and also this format is is it, there's a lot of truth telling that goes on a lot of lot yeah. of explanation I mean you and I could have met for lunch or had a coffee or whatever but we never would have talked like this never would no. have talked about us uh, yes, one has to presume that listeners are interested and that they'll make their mind up. In fact, they may not even be here listening to us now. They may have gone <laughs> 10 minutes ago. Uh, but they wouldn't have gone through the Everest, but they would have stuck around for that, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, com- com- completely. And, uh, and I think, yeah, that, that's been probably the, the most positive thing is just the, the number of people we've been able to speak to, particularly those from outside of our industry, actually, who can bring this kind of DNI lens that is pretty you know beyond what 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 we've been speaking about has just been just fascinating and and we come off the calls feeling really kind of energized by what people are doing and it's it's just amazing to hear the work that people are doing around dni and how and the passion around it and i know that live search do a lot as well um yeah, I think for, from that that perspective it's it's fantastic i think the any any downsides um do you know what? I'm, I'm probably going to say that I underestimated the work involved in editing. And Don't marketing. worry, I did too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a job in itself, isn't it? It um, totally is. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that probably be far more painstaking than anyone realises. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot that happens behind the scenes, right? Um, I think from my perspective, because... Like, sorry, you just turned up and do the interviews. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, I was talking about wider downsides. How do you grow a listenership? Mm. I, I really, you know, this is this is this should be a very interesting podcast to quite a small subset of humanity who, who are interested in in tab A and life search and and you know I expect insurance professionals will listen to this if we can just get them to know about it. That's mm. that's that's a bit that I find frustrating. It's just marketing, just getting it out there. Uh, but th- one of the ones we did, the first one we did of this new series, which is sort of focused about leadership and, uh, and, and uh, 
people who, who entrepreneurship was with uh, an utterly remarkable. Uh, Wasfikani, you listen to it, right? Yeah, Wasfikani, yeah, yeah okay. So, I mean, a, a force of nature. And I, I sort of said, I thought, I really want the world to hear that yeah. one. You know, that is really good. And how do you get it out there? Uh, yeah. You're constantly saying to people, you know, please follow, recognize, whatever, subscribe. And people just drift through their days. Uh, so it's, a, it's one thing to, to say something which you think is really worth people hearing. It's another thing to get them to hear you. <laughs> completely, uh, completely. And I think that's something we've faced on ours as well. And I think in the beginning, I think I was very focused on the numbers, right? The listenership and things like that. And, and I think... Now I'm less concerned about that. I kind of appreciate that, you know, we are a little bit more niche. We're not a mainstream consumer podcast and that's okay. And actually I'd rather we had, you know, a small number of really engaged listeners versus, you know, thousands and thousands of people who tune in, you know, uh, but actually aren't aren't as engaged. Um, It's hard, isn't it? Because I think the... There's so much content out there. And I think during the pandemic as well, think about the number of podcasts that started. Um, People were living on social media. It was constant content being fed to people. So it's such a competitive place to launch a a podcast in. Um, And then, of course, now the challenge is that things are opening up. People are switching off digital media. They've had enough of it. So there's there's also that that challenge as well. It's not easy. It's not easy. Um, But I think you're right. I think... Well, do it for the conversations. Yeah. Yeah, as long as you're happy to put in the time around that for those conversations, then it's worth it. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So, Risky Mix has been going for for quite some time now. Yeah. What are you, 50 episodes? We are coming up to 70. 70, okay. We were doing weekly episodes, and then we realised, or I realised, my goodness, I can't can't sustain this. I'm learning that as we speak. (laughs) Yeah, you're going through that journey as well. Yeah. But in the time that since you started Risky Mix, have you, because of Risky Mix or because of a much larger global swell, have you seen the changes in our industry that you've that you and Raj have been looking for? I think um, it's, yeah, it's probably fair to say that there have definitely been improvements over the last few years. I think there have been improvements around gender in particular. Um, I think the, I don't know if you saw the kind of recent cover article, which which provided the kind of figures from the CII, which was, yes. you know, they, they, they were disclosing their, their kind of median gender pay gap and their and their pension gap. And and there ha- there has been a reduction over the last 12 months, which is, which is great. I think it's around sitting around 10%. But, you know, our industry is still lagging behind the average of about 8%. So there's... It's things are definitely getting better, and you know I think other kind of positive things that are happening are you know more reporting. So you know the ethnicity um, pay gap, you know the CII reports on that. I know other companies do as well, and that's that's a good step. It's not a legal requirement. It's good that companies are doing that because I think until we know, until we're transparent about the starting point, we don't know what we need to do to 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 change things. So we need a base to work from. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's clearly still loads of work to do. The fact that there are these gaps that exist, we have to continue to go beyond, you know, gender, race and ethnicity. Of course, you know, d is so broad. We, we need to look at disability, sexuality, religion um, and, and all the kind of intersecting characteristics that come into that. So I think, you know, there's from my perspective, I feel like there's a hell of a lot to learn about all of these other aspects of DNI, and and actually, you know, I'm fortunate to to learn a lot through the podcast and the people that we we speak to. 
and and hopefully we're hopefully we're bringing conversations around those topics to the table through the risky mix essentially so i think in, in answer to your question i don't think we're we're not done we we, we can't we can't no, tick the dni not. box and say yeah no we're not yeah we're not done but mm. it's positive to see some you know good good things happening i think one of the the uh there has been, from my perspective, there's been real success in, in developing uh, the, the gender equality. Um, as you say, not enough and way to go, but nonetheless, from where I started. Um, yeah. yeah. But the, the difficulty, uh, the one particular area f- causes us in terms of, of promoting and, and, and recruiting, promoting and, and developing women in, in protection is also reflected in, in on the on the ethnic and religious and, and disabilities sides of D and I, uh, and that is the the shortage of recruits wanting to come in to particular mm. jobs. In, in our case, we really struggled to get women to become advisors. Right, uh, and uh, uh, it just is really uh, not something we get enough female applicants for. Uh, and I guess it's a sales job. I guess it's a telephone sales job. I, we yeah. don't see it that way. You know, they are advisors, not not salespeople. But nonetheless, you know, you are dealing with a situation where customers can say no. So it's it's a slightly harder edge job than something in mm. support or, or head office or whatever. And it, it seems to me that the real challenge in DNI is no longer prejudice in the industry. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of that, but it, it, that isn't the killer the, or, or, or the hardest challenge. The, the hardest challenge is to get people who, mm. uh, who are um, diverse to, 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 to come, to, come yeah. to us and say, give us a job. I think, I think we, we, we talk a lot about the role of the kind of application process in, in the DNI aspect, as uh, DNI space, as you've kind of just mentioned. And I think there are so many kind of very subtle barriers throughout that process that if we you know we just talk about women for a second but you know I think we know these things but you know the language used in a job spec can really turn a female applicant off over a male applicant if it's written in more male language for for just one example right but that that could be one thing and then it's you know even if they even if you choose to apply you then get into the interview process it's kind of well what does the interviewer look like and what language are they using and are they using a lot of strong male language and is that is that you know does that appeal to me and then it's it's those unconscious biases that we don't know we have um where we may be asking questions and and kind of wanting to recruit somebody who looks like a pool of people we already have because they're successful but not consciously doing it but it can be really it's really hard i think that's what's hard with dni now is it's so subtle not all of it sadly not all of it is subtle but a lot of it is you know mm. it, it i think it's i think it's really looking with a magnifying glass at your your journey for applicants you know where you're advertising how you're advertising what language you're using how are you interviewing who's interviewing that whole process and, and hearing from from lots of different types of people as to how would they feel at those different stages um it's yeah it's t- it's a tough one to compare it to something maybe less interesting it's like the selling protection problem yeah the audience has a stigma yes Uh, maybe not the audience has a stigma but there is a stigma and to dismantle that that thing that is so entwined in in every stitch of our culture is is really hard absolutely and it will take decades 
Well, yeah. it doesn't. Have, yeah, it should be done as quickly as possible. But uh, uh, so, so I wouldn't be pessimistic uh, as to say decades. But it is a constant good job mm-hmm. that needs to be done. It is a constant striving, yeah. and uh, yeah, that's that's all one can do is constantly strive and see uh, see how fast you go. I think one one other thing I one other thing I will say, and it's particularly on the the well a little bit more on the female point, still still helps potentially a lot of other people as well. But we had an absolutely fascinating episode on job sharing. Um, and flexible, flexible working um, with with a couple of ladies a few a few weeks or months back, and that really opened my eyes to, you know, if if you've got women who are new parents, for example, or just you know want to want to work part time for whatever reason, and it's not I'm not this isn't exclusively women, but you know can can often be women having the the having that option of a job share partnership, which I'd never actually come across. Yeah. It's amazing. Like they, they, you know, these ladies were in a job share, and, and they they explained how they worked. And I thought, God, do you know what? I I would be up for that actually. But but I don't know. I think there's a way to go um, for companies to embrace that way of working and to really accept it. But that's just one, yeah, one interesting kind of potential solution or something that could help. It's a neat segue from talking about stigmas to uh, the Income Protection Task Force, because the Income Protection is the the Cinderella people call it of our of our market, and I don't know anyone who knows what they're talking about who doesn't think it should be pretty much the primary product we advise people to buy, uh, and yet it's a tiny minority product still. Perhaps moving beyond fault, how how, how really can we turn that Cinderella into um, well the queen? So that's a big question, Tom, and I think if I had the answer, <laughs> we would have hopefully have done it. I, I don't know what the single answer is, to, to be honest. I think there is clearly a huge lack of awareness or lack of understanding on the consumer side as to what income protection is. I think, you know, any young person you speak to, I, I, I don't, I, I doubt many have ever heard of a product called income protection insurance. And I do also then also think, I think is the name quite right, and again, I know that's an ongoing industry debate. But is income protection the right label for a product like that? Does it does it resonate? Does it actually get across how it works? I think the products in themselves are are good. Risk tolerance that the insurers and reinsurers have 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 broadened, which is great, so more people can get cover. But are people even? How do we get more people in at the first stage? And 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 you know, and I guess that partly comes down to the advisor conversations as well. You know, how do how do we help advisors become more comfortable to talk about income protection? You know, Life Search are a protection business. So you, you know, your guys will will focus on IP. But the wealth advisors, the mortgage advisors, who to them IP is just very complex and kind of you know a, a product that has a, a horrendous underwriting process well not not actually and you know if you do a few cases it, it could make a huge difference so so i think for me it's um it's the consumer education piece getting you know really tapping into something that they're interested in and then helping advisors to have more of those conversations about ip it's interesting the life searcher's new ceo starts on monday uh and she was formerly the uh MD of the largest income protection writing insurer. I'm not sure if LV are that, but just about. Certainly the most focused on it, I think. And uh, so I'm quite intrigued to see what uh, she and I can conjure up in retail 
Um, because as you say, consumer engagement is vital. But since when were insurance companies any good at engaging consumers? No, no, that's the job of retailers, um, which is a word I prefer to distributors, which is the word I used to prefer. But anyway, the, the, um, you know, we do need, someone needs to get out there and do a retail job on income protection and promote it. But uh, risk that it could be a complete waste of money and a guaranteed loss maker because trying to convince consumers of something new does not always work. Indeed. And just um, finally, in the in the three minutes we have remaining, we've got lots of leaders on show at the moment. What do you make of them? So I think um, I'm going to I'm going to keep it pos- keep it positive. So it's, we end on a, on a positive note. I think. Um, you know, she's bit, she hasn't been perhaps quite as visible for um, for a while. But but I think, you know, a leader that really stands out to me is actually um, Greta Thunberg. I think, you know, as a as a young kind of climate campaigner, and I know, and I know that she, defi- she divides opinion, but I just love what she does. I think she's, as a young woman, to be so strong and so consistent in your, your message and, and your opinion and be able to kind of challenge some of the, you know, the powers that be, um, across across the globe is incredible and I think she's had such she's just a force um and I think she's united people and and you know climate climate change is is a huge huge obviously issue and something that we need to be addressing and and things are happening but it's I just I just think she's fantastic she's she's just united people around this this you know cause and this thing that we have to genuinely get on and sort um so I think yeah she stands out to me you're right. To be a genius at such a young age yeah. and to have, have that communication skill, because that's what she has. Right, exactly. Unbelievable communication skill. And it's not coached, it's natural. To have that just makes her infinitely more powerful yes. you know, than anyone yeah. middle-aged or whatever could be. Uh, and she's uh, really raised climate change or helped raise climate change to the very top of the yeah. agenda, which is where, where it now rightly sits. Yeah. Um, what happens from here? Mm. Big question. A question that is not for this podcast, I'm afraid. It's another podcast, I think, that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's another podcast. Katie, thank you so much. Thank you, Katie. My dad and I enjoyed talking to you hugely. It might be a bit self-serving, but I really found what you had to say about running your own podcast super helpful. It's always nice to speak to someone who's in the same boat. I hope these first few days of motherhood are, not just these first days, but all these days of motherhood are an absolute joy. Life Search wishes you all the best. Next week is the penultimate episode of the season, and we've got an absolute cracker for you. Tony Langham is the CEO of Lansons, or rather, he is right now, not for long. He's also a PR guru and horse racing lover. Here Tom and I get to know him next week on Searching for Elephants. And if you're listening to this, remember to like, subscribe, and give us that big star review. Cheers, everyone. <laughs>